from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Good evening, welcome to the program. It's Tuesday night, the uh, 9th of January, and happy to be here with you guys. If you want to join uh, the live broadcast, feel free, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And the weather's ugly. There's a huge mega storm. they're saying. I do see some of it. Uh, I'm seeing more rain than I've seen in a really long time here uh, in the New York City area. Very, very uh, rough out there. Lost power a couple of times. So if I'm in mid-sentence, today it's not the deep state unless it's a deep state weatherized, weaponized weapon. (laughs) I don't know. But I will say uh, I'm hoping we get through the broadcast with little to no incident. Now, there's a bunch of things to talk about, like usual, but not enough time. Really, there's a lot of things I want to dig into, right? There's some funny business with Funny Willis. Her and her boyfriend that we just found out was her boyfriend uh, made almost a million bucks from the Trump indictment, uh, him being paid by tax dollars, all tax dollars. And then they went on lavish vacations. I'm going to get into that a little bit later. Plus, this said boyfriend, he uh, met with the White House twice before charging Trump in uh, Fulton County. So we got the story on that. I'm going to bring it to you in a little bit. Um, Then there's kids being kicked out of school so that the school can shelter uh, illegal immigrants because the storm is tearing apart the shelter that they have right now. That's that. Then we've got Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. He's admitting that 85% of the immigrants that are uh, captured are released into the interior of the United States. And the Pentagon responded today to uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin being MIA. Pat Ryder responded to that. I'll get into that a little bit um, later as well. I wanted to start, though, with this story. Uh, and plus, we're going to talk about some Epstein and we're going to talk about how his brother came out. His brother, Epstein's brother, says he thinks the death was was foul play and that there's a cover up involved. We're going to dig into that a little bit deep um, in the next um, segment, the rest of this hour. But what I want to talk about right now is what happened in the D.C. court, right? Because uh, the Court of Appeals today was uh, hearing arguments from Trump and Trump's team, obviously. And it's good. It's good. A lot of things were said, right? A lot of uh, the the talking heads and CNN and the rest of the place, they're all over the place. They are all over their reactions because they're saying, well, you know, this is um, this is very bad. If Trump gets immunity, if Trump this, if Trump that... It's it's very interesting just to, to see this happening because, in effect, it's almost like the media. Not in effect. In reality, it's the the media is pretending like this government was not weaponized against Donald Trump, that he was not spied on. Right? They did not use the instrumentality of the FISA court to spy on people working in his campaign so that they could actively spy on his campaign, and then actively spy on both candidate Trump and then President Trump. All of that really happened, right? And this is all 
uh, spelled out in the Inspector General's report. The rest of what was spelled out here was brought out in the Mueller report. Right? Russia, 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 the Russia hoax, Russian collusion, fake phony fraud. And we find out that it was actually the FBI that was working with the, uh, with the Russians, and one of them just was sentenced to jail for that. Right? They found the FBI lawyer that was doctoring evidence. They, uh, there was a bunch of different things that went on. Now, that all really happened, and everybody seems to have a very short memory about it. So now everybody on CNN, MSNBC, and the rest of the networks are saying, well, what happens if... What happens if Trump is elected? Is he now going to try and prosecute Biden? Well, hold on a second. Isn't that exactly what's happening right now? Wasn't Donald Trump's house, Mar-a-Lago, raided by the FBI last August? Am I the only one that remembers that? Of course not. You guys remember that, too. Because an elephant never forgets, right? We don't have these short memories that the rest of these clowns have on CNN. It's, It's amazing to me. And they're, they're painting this picture like if Donald Trump is elected, he is going to use the government as retribution toward bad, the bad people. And even, even some of my friends who uh, are Trump haters and disagree with me on my politics, they're all saying, look, it's going to be a waste of four years. Trump is just going to come after all the bad guys. That's called justice, my friends. This is what they did to him. He's going to try and correct the record. I mean, you can't just let stuff happen. Now, of course, they're going to beat him up for it. They're going to say, hey, that they are... They're doing um, all of the all of the fanfare. They're going to make all of the hype. They're going to say, no, no, Trump is coming after everybody. He's weaponizing everything, yada, yada, yada. I get it. But anyway, before they kick me out of here, I wanted to get to this audio because Trump had some words today, and I want you to hear what he said. We had a, I thought, a very momentous day in terms of what was learned and what they've conceded. They conceded two major points that were, uh, they were right in doing it. I don't think they had much of a choice, but they're very, very big, very powerful points. And I think we're doing very well. I think it's very unfair when a opponent, a political opponent, is prosecuted by the DOJ, by Biden's DOJ. Uh, so they're losing in every poll. They're losing in almost every demographic. Uh, numbers came out today that are uh, really very mind-boggling if you happen to be Joe Biden. And I think they feel this is the way they're going to try and win. And that's not the way it goes. It'll be bedlam in the country. It's a very bad thing. It's a very bad precedent. As we said, it's the opening of a Pandora's box. And it's a very, it's a very sad thing that's happened with this whole situation. Uh, when they talk about uh, threat to democracy, that's your real threat to democracy. And I feel that as a president, you have to have immunity. Very simple. And if you don't, as an example, if uh, this case were lost on immunity and I did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong, I'm working for the country and I worked on uh, very hard on voter fraud because we have to have free elections. We have to have strong borders. We have to have free elections. Those two things almost above all. And we found tremendous voter fraud. We have a list of it. We have some findings if you want it. The press doesn't like reporting it, but we found tremendous voter fraud, determinative voter fraud. But we worked on that. That's what I was doing. And uh, they were talking about after. Well, nothing has to do with after I left. It was during the time. And that was what they really focused on today during the appeal. 
and they concede that, and everybody concedes that, and if it's during the time, you have absolute immunity. So uh, we'll see how it all works out. Now, Trump, of course, said that's what they were talking about in today's appeal. And, of course, he was talking about his attorney, John Sauer, who was uh, having arguments with uh, Judge Florence Pan with respect to what's going on. We have a short clip of that. Listen to this. So I just want to confirm your position is if President Trump had been convicted after his impeachment trial on incitement of insurrection, if he'd been convicted, then this prosecution would be entirely proper. Uh, which I would say that if he were impeached and convicted for the same and similar conduct, then that would authorize a subsequent prosecution. Obviously, we have many other issues with so this is, prosecution. Is that a yes? So I don't. Because I think you said in your brief that that impeachment for incitement of insurrection is based on the same or related conduct as that which is in the indictment. Yes, yes, yeah, I agree with that. So if he had been convicted by the Senate, then this prosecution would be entirely proper, Correct. Well, I would not phrase it that way because there's lots of other problems with this prosecution that we've raised in extensive pleadings to the district court. He could be prosecuted. Under the impeachment judgment clause, if he had been convicted by the Senate when he was impeached for incitement of insurrection on same or related conduct as what's in the indictment, then this prosecution would be properly brought. This A prosecution could be properly brought. This prosecution, which has tons of other problems with it. I just want to be very clear about that. I'm making any concession that this prosecution is. All right, let me try one more time. Under your interpretation of the impeachment judgment clause, if President Trump had been convicted when he was previously impeached on same or related conduct as that which is in this indictment, the government could properly prosecute him for that same or related conduct. Yes or no? Potentially, provided they qualified with all kinds of other legal doctrines that are violated in this case. So I admit that a prosecution I'm only asking could be you under your under your interpretation of the impeachment judgment clause. Is that proper? Is that allowed? And I stand on my prior answer. I think we're agreeing. I, I, I understand there might be other reasons why you would challenge this prosecution. I'm saying based on your interpretation of the clause, this prosecution would be properly brought. If a, again, I would not say this prosecution, be very clear about that. But it's a prosecution based on same or related conduct. This prosecution, which has many other issues related to it, what I would say is that the impeachment judgment, judgment clause authorizes the prosecution of a president who's been impeached and convicted by the Senate. So there you go. You've got the back and forth. Now, just mind you, pay very close attention to what they're arguing. They're not talking about the merits of this case. They're talking about a hypothetical on the merits of this case. And uh, kudos to John Sauer for holding his ground as the judge tried to railroad him and bully him into uh, making the answer that she wanted him to make. But that's not the, the response. And I think he was smart to say what he said. But this is what they're up against. This is what the Trump team is up against. And they will do absolutely anything that they can to make sure that they uh, derail the success that Trump is having on the election trail. We'll keep you up to speed as we have more information on that as it's available. Uh, Straight ahead, I want to talk about what is going on with Jeffrey Epstein's uh, brother, who says that his brother's death was foul play and that this is a cover-up. We're going to get to that and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. (laughs) 
Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Familia, our number, if you want to join the conversation, 833-4825-337-8334, Valdez. And the uh, brother of Jeffrey Epstein, he claims that this is not right, that there was a cover-up going on, and he's listing the evidence that he claims that the feds are using to cover up uh, his pedophile brother's death. So... Uh, I want to get to the bottom of this because I think there's a lot to look at here. And uh, uh, somebody that's a regular on this program and always just uh, does an amazing job is Dr. Carol Lieberman. She is a psychiatrist and uh, an expert witness. She's known as uh, uh, America's psychiatrist, and she's with us now. Dr. Carol, welcome back. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. So, Let's let's unpack this. We've got some time to do it, and I'm really interesting here. What do you think are some of the most uh, compelling examples of evidence that that kind of support the thesis being presented by Jeffrey Epstein's brother that that this wasn't a suicide? Well, there are actually a lot of things. Um, you know, it's amazing that they have been able to cover this up for so long because some of these. Uh, things that his brother has found are are just so obvious. Um, For example, they won't release the 911 call to him or to anybody, you know, to the public. Um, They, you know, the, the fact that there were so many things that, you know, a perfect storm of things that went wrong on the night that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. It's hard to believe. I mean, you know, as a forensic psychiatrist, of course, I've spent a lot of time, in jails and prisons, um, examining people, you know, as their defense uh, psychiatrist and all that. So I know things, you know, <laughs> they can get pretty iffy. Right. Um, but uh, but there are too many things for have uh, to believe that they all were happening at the same time. So, for example, um, uh, they also didn't give his brother the um, pre-hospital care report. In other words. While they found him supposedly in his cell, Jeffrey Epstein, um, after having hanged himself, and um, the so and they you know whisked him off, even though there's another, even though he was like uh, said to have been dead when they found him. In fact, said to have been dead for a while. They somehow still whisked him off to the hospital, you know, and just um, I mean there was no hope that anybody could revive him at that point. Right. Um, what else? Um, the well, first of all, the autopsy. Now they did an autopsy with two doctors. Um, the doctor that would have been, you know, regularly done it um, for well, or I guess someone they might have had in particular uh, to do this autopsy. But the um, his brother asked to have his own. Um, doctor, Dr. Michael Baden, who's, you know, really well known. He's a, he's often called in on controversial cases, autopsies, you know, he's very knowledgeable and so on. And so he was there and he was overseeing it. And so the two doctors, um, Dr. Kristen Roman and Dr. Baden uh, agreed to list the manner of death as pending. But then um, a week later, a, the New York chief medical examiner, Barbara Sam- Sampson, uh, she just changed the 
the uh, report to say suicide. And she said she had seen additional evidence, but she never said what that additional evidence was. And now Dr. Bud explains reasons why um, it doesn't, it didn't look like any suicide that he's seen in his 50 years. Hmm. Um, For example, he said that he had two breaks on each side of his thyroid cartilage near his Adam's apple and one above it on the left side of, of his hyoid bone. And these uh, findings would be, quote, extremely unusual in suicidal hangings and, quote, could occur much more commonly in homicidal strangulation. Mm. So um, then also when they found, when they first came into this, his cell and they found him, no photo was taken. So we don't know, uh, other than what they're telling us, what position his body was actually in when he was found, um, which is important, you know, in determining how a person died. Then there were autopsy photos um, and there were marks on his throat from the ligature that were in, well, the supposed ligature that, um, that was, were in the middle to lower portion of the neck and straight, not raised, and pointing toward the side and back of the throat in a way most more consistent with hanging. So um, that, that's you know that's what these photos are showing. But but again, Dr. Biden, I mean, he's not you know he doesn't have any um, what is the what's the thing? He no doesn't dog have in a something. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he didn't have a dog, um, and so you know, and he has a reputation to maintain. Right. Um, also they, um, in terms of his cell, his cell was very peculiar. Um, the guard who found him, his name was Michael Thomas. And he, sometimes he said that he ripped the sheet and sometimes he said he cut the sheet. And then he said he began doing CPR, uh, until the EMTs arrived. Hmm. Well, let's Uh, pause right there, Dr. Carol, and come right back. Folks, we're on with Dr. Carol Lieberman. Uh, America's psychiatrist. She, she's come. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Welcome back. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, information coming out of the Jeffrey Epstein documents. 
some files are now revealing that there's been trafficking allegations against many prominent figures. And uh, as those things continue to come out, more and more uh, questions are arising about the death of Jeffrey Epstein, including questions being raised by his brother, uh, who suggests that this is just not consistent with uh, the facts. And his brother, Mark Epstein, has been campaigning for a lot more information to be made public, including a video from the cell block, which is available, and uh, saying to the New York Post, I only want to look at the facts, but when we consider the facts that are available, we get more questions. There appears to have been no investigation once it was ruled a suicide. They saw no reason to dig any deeper. It seems like a cover-up. Why can't I find his pre-hospital care report? Why can't I get the 911 call? The uh, following information and the following questions uh, were brought about by his brother's now four-year investigation into the death of his brother, Jeffrey. So this is where we are. We've been having this discussion with Dr. Carol Lieberman. She is uh, America's psychiatrist, excuse me, and she's back with us. So, Doc, before the break, you were telling us uh, some of the instances that were inconsistent. Let's pick up where you left off. Sure. And the reason why this is so important, like some people might be thinking, well, what difference does it make? He was a pedophile. If he committed suicide or, you know, he had a heart attack, who cares? Well, the, the reason why we should care is because of just what you were saying, you know, as the names are coming out of these prominent people, Um, a lot of people on that list, or at least a few, (laughs) I don't know about a lot, but there are, it is potentially possible, um, that some people would want him dead. And, um, because in order to not testify about their involvement with his, um, you know, underage girls, uh, sex ring. So in general, sort of, there were other things like the noose that was given for investigation as evidence was not the right noose. Um, the cameras, most of the cameras were not working. The guards were sleeping. <laughs> and then, um, you can't I mean, you make know, it like up. The, you're right, exactly. And then the, the, an important part is that this, the timing, because he was supposed to have a hearing in a few days, um, to appeal his bail restrictions. And why would he kill himself right before he was going to have this hearing? If he got bail, he would have been able to get out of jail, await trial in his own house with an ankle monitor. And he had a dream team of lawyers. So clearly he would have been feeling um, optimistic about that. Yeah, one would suppose. Uh, so, yeah, the, the facts don't seem to support um, the actions that occurred what what happens from here with uh, Epstein's brother's investigation from your assessment? Well, I hope he doesn't give up. You know, it's interesting. He makes the point that um, he he doesn't have a dog in the fight either, um, that he wasn't mentioned uh, in Jeffrey Epstein's will, which is kind of kind of sad, you know, right. Um, <laughs> So, in other words, for him, it's not like he's going to get more money one way or the other if it was suicide or not. Um, but, you know, he he wants to know. He wants to know if his brother was killed. And I think here we are having 170 names come out, which really uh, annoys me no end, because um, there is for most of these people, there is no evidence that they did anything wrong other than, you know, they picked a <laughs> poor choice in friends. Um, yeah. But there is no evidence that 
they did do anything sexual with any of these girls. I mean, some of them, Clinton, of course, there is a uh, big surprise. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, but I, I have long, I think we might have even talked. I think we did after the um, trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. Didn't right. we have, didn't, yes. Yeah. And I was saying, I know, I was uh, one of the few people, I guess, who were, were saying that, um, and this is because of my own experience as being an expert witness in cases where um, women or even men, you know, accused someone of being uh, of sexually assaulting them, raping them and so on. Sometimes it's true. Most of the time it's true, but it's not always true. Sometimes these people, and it's usually women, have other reasons for why they're accusing someone. Like, for example, in this case, you know, they're 15 plus minutes of fame, money, tons of money. Um, and, and, you know, and, and perhaps like, for example, uh, Virginia Roberts and AKA Gofrey, um, mm-hmm. she admits that she was sexually abused when she was a child. She had a very awful childhood and it could be, I, I don't really, I mean, I, I've called some, she has lied about certain things, but some of the things might not be lies. They might just be, and I've seen this, I've, I've had cases like this, where the women aren't necessarily lying when they say someone sexually assaulted them, but it's somebody else in their childhood who assaulted them, abused them, raped them, and um, they are projecting it onto some other man later in their life. And they're not necessarily lying about it, um, but it's just there's some similarities between this man and their father or whoever it was who abused them as a child. Um, but I, I have a lot of trouble believing her. Um, for example, you know, the whole thing with Prince Andrew, uh, she, this, this photo, I mean, we've all seen it, you know, all over the place, right. With, uh, yeah. with Ghislaine and Prince Andrew and, and her. Um, and yet when it came time to provide the photo, all of a sudden, she doesn't know where it is. Well, if you had a photo that was worth millions of dollars, somehow I think you'd be keeping it in a safe place, a bank vault, your lawyer's office, some kind of a, uh, you know, not just, she, sometimes she says, you know, she thinks it might be in a, in a drawer with her kids' toys. I mean, come on. It, it, sounds, it sounds bizarre. And uh, it, it begs a lot of questions. Uh, I also don't agree uh, with the facts and at least the fact pattern as it stands. It seems to me like this, um, and it has from the beginning, has always occurred to me that it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And mainly the the way I, I understood it, they said that he was on a bottom bunk. There was no top bunk and that he hung himself from the bunk, uh, a, a regular level bed to the floor. I guess that's possible in some way, but it seems very improbable. Am I getting this wrong? Well, I don't know. There's a description of how he was like uh, hanged in a seating, a, a seated position, yeah, like a and kneeling he was, or sitting position, and it, like an inch or so um, from the floor. I, I, I mean, it, I, it, I'm not. <laughs> it's hard I'm to make sense of that. I'm not much of an expert as Biden, but um, but it does it does sound very weird, and actually. There was another um, another expert pathologist who was also questioning it, and that is um, uh, Wex. Um, what's his name? Yes, yeah, Cyril Weck, Doctor Cyril Weck. He also um, is questioning, you know, all these details. 
Yeah, I think that's, that's all one can do is question the details. Now, uh, based on your experience as an expert witness and, and everything else that you've done over the years, um, what do you know about how prisons actually make these determinations uh, as to, you know, who might be suicidal, how they you know, sequester them, how they, you know, put them in different areas? What's that process like? Well, that is sort of a weak link um, because a lot of the people, a lot of the therapists, well, first of all, they don't always have psychiatrists um, doing these evaluations of the prisoners. Sometimes it's people with less of an education who mental health professionals with less education. And so, um, and they don't necessarily examine them for hours, you know, long enough really to make uh, an accurate determination as to how suicidal they are. So sometimes, you know, that is the weak link if they, if the therapist um, doesn't doesn't convey strongly enough to the jail that the person is potentially suicidal. Um, in this case, I don't know, it, it, there are different reports, but in this case, it seems like um, there was some concern that he might be suicidal, but then, you know, some concern, but then look at all the things that they did. In fact, supposedly there was one mental health professional who told the jail, the prison, that um, they should have a, another uh, inmate in his cell with him all, at all times because he might be suicidal. And then they did have um, two different inmates at different times, but then there were reasons why those inmates left. So they didn't keep an inmate in with him at all times. And when he killed, when he allegedly killed himself, he didn't have an inmate in there at that time, which is another, you know, failing. Yeah. Doesn't make a lot of sense there. Folks, we're on with Dr. Carol Lieberman. She's America's psychologist, excuse me, psychiatrist. And uh, we're going to continue this uh, discussion about Jeffrey Epstein as all these names continue to come to the surface and uh, more and more information becomes available. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're going to get to your calls momentarily. 833-4825-337-8334 Valdez. And uh, before we do, I want to uh, continue our conversation with America's psychiatrist, Dr. Carol Lieberman. You can check her out at expertwitnessforensicpsychiatrist.com. That's expertwitnessforensicpsychiatrist.com. And uh, Dr. Carol, but before we uh, wrap up, I, I want to get your thoughts on this list, the ex, the Epstein list. And um, I don't believe that everybody named on this list has been involved in some sort of um, child sex act. Uh, I think maybe they were having sex. Maybe they weren't all children. Um, you know, if you're a guy in your 50s or 60s or 70s and you meet a girl that's 30, you know, technically she's really young, but not illegal by any means. What's your thought on the names coming out of the Epstein list? Yes, I think that it is so unfair um, to release these names because there is the insinuation 
you know, right. that all these people had sex with minors. And in fact, it, it's not the case. It's that um, these were names that were in uh, in depositions and so on. And for the most part, it's hearsay upon hearsay. And it's even where, like, a, a lawyer would ask the person they're deposing, did you ever see so-and-so? And they would say no, you know, but their name is still on the list because their name was in these legal papers. So, um, you know, and, and here they're doing, you know, they're releasing this, this huge list of names and, um, you know, with these implications. And yet when it comes to investigating whether Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide or not, that's right. a cover-up. You know, that's right. hidden. <laughs> but all these names are out there. Yeah. Well, and truth be told, though, I mean, for the last four years, most of them have been a secret. And but for this recent revelation, a lot of people wouldn't know. So I, I find it interesting. Uh, I realize that when you have these parties, when you're a financier like Epstein, and again, while he was in the business of of providing underage um, prostitutes to to wealthy people that have a pension for that, <clears throat> I still think a big part of his business was putting together these parties and inviting you know, a who's who's list uh, of people to be at these events. And I don't know if they were all for the sake of engaging in child sex. I think they were oftentimes for, for the sake of getting a lot of rich and powerful people in a room together. Uh, that was kind of like the draw. It's like, Hey, I can get you in the room with so-and-so and so-and-so and, you know, here's what it's going to cost mm -hmm. you. And, and I think that's, you know, a big part of all of this. And, and it's, it's just, you know, now it's, if you were at the party, shoot, you're done, you know? And uh -huh. I guess that's unfortunate, but that's that's where we are. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and, and also one of the names, uh, Jean-Luc Brunel, he um, is another sad story. Uh, he was a model. Uh, he ran a modeling agency and he was good friends with Jeffrey Epstein and he did provide some girls to him, um, although it's not clear whether they were underage or not. But right. in any, he models. He gave them, him models. Um and he was in jail in France, and um, he is alleged to have committed suicide. Now, I don't know whether he did really commit suicide or he died from other causes, but um, what, what is sad is that if you look at, if, if it, if you look at um, Virginia Roberts, um, you know, her allegations have, have caused so much uh, trouble, it's, you know, so much disaster in the lives of so many people, including these two deaths. You know, Jeffrey Epstein and Jean-Luc Brunel. Right. And hopefully, um, you know, that's the end of that. And it doesn't continue to spiral from there. Dr. Carol Lieberman, I want to thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Let everybody know how they could follow the amazing work that you're doing. Well, since we're talking about, uh, you know, criminal things, <laughs> the best <laughs> place is to go to my website, expertwitnessforensicpsychiatrist.com. There's a lot of interesting stuff Check her out there. Follow her on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it nowadays, at Dr. Carol MD. She's a terrific person to follow. Excellent guest as always. Dr. Carol, I appreciate you. You're very welcome. I, I appreciate you too. All right. All right, America, we're coming right back with your calls and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night 
with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Welcome, excuse me. And I want to go to the phones, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Let's go to Schwenksville, Pennsylvania, WXDE, and check in with Sue. Hey, Sue, Happy New Year. You're on with Rich Valdez. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too. The only thing I wanted to add to what your guest was saying, although I, I do believe, like she said, there's very little evidence, they, you know, the lack of pictures and things like that of the scene. Um, my husband worked as a correctional officer at Greaterford Prison here in Pennsylvania for 34 years. Mm. And he, they commit suicide like that all the time, from the bottom bunk, sitting down, that sort of thing. So it's highly possible that he did that. Usually when they do that, they do it with the assistance of drugs. Because, you know, oh, your body... That's is, how you get the weight going. Yeah, so what they right. do... Yeah, that's my thinking. Themselves. I'm thinking if you're going to pass out, you're going to stand up. Right. Yeah, your body's not going to let you kill it, sort of thing. But right. if you're under the influence of drugs and stuff like that, the way they tie the shirt or whatever it is up to the bed, and uh, they can just kind of, like, lean over or fall over. And, and they do it all the time. He's found many inmates, uh, you know, that kill themselves that way in cells. Wow. Well, that's something. That's uh, very interesting. Sue, I appreciate that. I, I had no idea, honestly. Uh, I, I'd heard about it. This, to me, it was, it was the, um, uh, the de facto term of, you know, we don't know what happened. Yeah, he hung himself sitting down. <laughs> it's just kind of like, you know, uh, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. But I could see if you drug yourself, I guess the bigger question becomes now, how do you, you know, get all these drugs? But it's prison. What can't you get in a prison, right? Sue, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. <clears throat> and... I want to continue our conversation from earlier about uh, the the immunity um, lawsuit, but I also want to talk about what's going on with the budget, right? Because um, I see Chip Roy is out there saying that if he's got to go ahead and uh, start a movement to impeach Mike Rogers, he will. Um, uh, in fact, one of Mike Rogers' former staffers, who's uh, a budget staffer, uh, is going to be joining us in a little bit to talk about this new budget deal and how a lot of people are upset with this budget and they want Speaker Johnson to, um, I don't know, drop the hammer to get a little bit tighter here. Uh, they, they don't like what they're seeing. So we'll get into a discussion on that as well uh, as we move forward in the program. And, um, and of course, Open Phone America is coming up a little bit later. So if you want to uh, join the conversation during Open Phone America, feel free. I'll give you the number for that is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDES. Plus, there's a, a no-confidence vote going on for Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. We're going to get into that as well, uh, probably in, at the top of the third hour. So stick around. There's a lot to talk about. It's also Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Uh, of course, you know, some of my brothers have uh, served in law enforcement. I volunteered with the Nutley Police Department Reserve, uh, auxiliary unit, rather. And uh, I always salute the men and women in blue. So, folks, don't go anywhere. We're just getting started. We're going to take a quick pause right here. Coming back with our number two, Don't Go Anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. the city that never sleeps. 
17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late-night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And, uh, and some sad news, the, the mother of former First Lady Melania Trump has passed away, uh, dead at the age of 78 years old. My condolences to the Trump family and to all of Melania's family. Very sorry to hear that. And um, Secretary Mayorkas uh, has admitted that Border Patrol uh, is releasing over 85% of illegal immigrants that enter the U.S. straight right back into the interior of our country. And uh, Speaker Johnson's facing an uphill battle uh, with uh, this funding deal. And uh, Newsmax is reporting that he might need help from the Democrats in order to pass this funding deal. This is uh, a big deal, and it's being reported by The Hill as well. Uh, because conservatives are so closely uh, divided in the House and they're angry about the package uh, that this may be, in fact, the case. And what's ironic here is that this is a very similar scenario to what happened with Speaker McCarthy. And that's why he got ousted from this position. Now you got Chip Roy, uh, Congressman Chip Roy from Texas, 21st District. He's out there saying, you know, look, um, not saying I'm going to lead the charge just yet, but we may have to. Uh, because people are up in arms about this deal. So to help us make sense of this deal, figure it out what's going on, why is everybody uh, uh, upset about it, I want to bring in somebody that worked with Johnson uh, in the House and uh, understands how this stuff um, works a lot better than you and I do. Uh, help me welcome Richard Stern. He's the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. He's a former budget staffer for Speaker Mike Johnson. Richard Stern, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show, Todd. You, you got it. So let's uh, talk about what's going on with this budget. Now, well, uh, I, everybody seems upset about it. Why? Oh, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. This is very similar to what McCarthy was negotiating. So, you know, at the end of the day here, and I think this is the important thing for everyone listening to understand – is the reason why inflation is so high, the reason why interest rates are so high, why mortgages are so unattainable for, for tens of millions of Americans, is because of government spending. So every time the government spends a dollar, and at least for the last three years, it drives inflation, it drives interest rates. So real conservatives want to cut government spending, and not just by a penny or a nickel, but hundreds of billions of dollars, making sure that we tamp down all the brakes on inflation, that we bring interest rates down, this bill would actually increase spending. And even if, if Johnson got credit for the, the non-gimmick kind of things he's talking about, the cut would be so negligible that it wouldn't bring down inflation and it wouldn't bring down interest rates. Well, break it down for us, uh, because th that doesn't seem to be what they're saying, right? They're saying that, that there's a uh, a, a decrease in spending. Um, others are arguing there's a net uh, increase in spending. Where does that come from? Well, this gets into the creative accounting of the federal government. I'm sure no one's surprised to hear that. So this is right. akin to saying, you know, this would be like saying to yourself, you know, I've got a tight budget. I'm only going to, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I've only got a hundred dollars to spend at the grocery store. 
for food. It's got to last me for, you know, a week or two or something like that. You go to the grocery store, you spend the hundred dollars. Then on the way back from the grocery store, you say, you know what? I'm feeling like steak and lobster tonight. And so you blow another hundred bucks at Ruth Chris and you say, well, that hundred dollars of Ruth Chris doesn't count because it wasn't part of my grocery budget. And I kept to the hundred dollar <laughs> grocery budget. So that's what's happening here. The 1.6 trillion they're talking about that's the grocery budget. The sidecar deals that they're talking about, that's the Ruth Chris steak and lobster money. So that's where the increase is. By, you know, kind of the grocery budget numbers, they're going from 1.6 trillion to 1.59 trillion. Yes, it's only a 10 billion dollar difference on more than one and a half trillion dollars. That's what I mean by it's a negligible cut. But with all the side deals and everything else, we're actually talking about 50 or something billion dollars in increased spending when you total up all that extra money. Wow. That's the last thing I wanted to hear, but exactly what it, what it is. So what, what happens here? I, you know, outside of the, um, the budget process, uh, I guess, politically speaking, uh, do you think this is another, another uh, shot across the bow where conservatives are going to say, you know what? We did it to the last guy. Now we got to do it to you, too. Well, it's hard to say that, though. But, I mean, you're right. A lot of conservatives are fuming over this, right? There's, there's also another dynamic at play here, and, and you brought up the border a minute ago, which is that, you know, that money isn't just money that the federal government steals from hardworking Americans and mm -hmm. uses at the leisure of politicians and bureaucrats, but that money pays for regulators. That money pays for the bureaucracy. So – you know, all year long last year, we had conservatives, people like Representative Chip Roy, who have pushed for defaming the FBI, right, for tying the hands of, of those regulators, of yeah. going after the border, right, after Mallorca saying, look, we need border security. Uh, you know, and, and even, you know, Senator Mike Lee has put out statements saying that we have two options, secure the border or shut down the government. So, you know, that's the other dynamic going on here. And so it's hard to say – where conservatives go, but they're angry and rightfully so, both over the spending levels, over these these deals that give Democrats more money to their infrastructure, their donors, their friends, but also over a lack of border security, a lack of tying the hands of regulators and using more of your money to buy the kind of oppression that the Biden regime has placed on everybody. Well, this is uh, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what's going on, folks. Uh, stick with us. We're on with Richard Stern. He's a former budget staffer for Speaker Mike Johnson, and he's currently the director of the Grover Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. We're coming right back with him. Of course, your calls are welcome. 833-482-5337-833-4 Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, the House and uh, the Senate also have released a bipartisan agreement on government funding as the shutdown deadline is approaching. And the deal that they're talking about, $1.59 trillion, doesn't look like a good deal. We're discussing it with our guest, Richard Stern. He's director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. He also is a former budget staffer for Speaker Mike Johnson. And uh, I guess the question remains, Does is this deal going to be dead in the water? Is it going to happen? If it does happen, does Speaker Johnson get impeached? Uh, what would a better way to go be, Richard Stern? Well, I, I think the crucial part of this, right, is that tragically, there are always enough elected Republicans. I personally like to call them rhinos, but there are always enough of them. <laughs> and then every Democrat who just don't care about government spending. In fact, they think it's a way to go home and say, hey, I got you free stuff. If you yeah, go look at the, the appropriations bill. Well, exactly right. And the thing that is hidden from view and the thing that, frankly, this kind of D.C. cartels, I like to call it, that's kind of in the middle and all the way to the left does, is they hide where that cost has come from. So, you know, most people, I think, listening tonight would say that the last generation or even longer in the U.S. has been met with economic malaise. The middle class has been hollowed out. Our industrial base has declined. We have dying towns across America. Over the last couple of years, people have felt, of course, like their wages aren't keeping up with prices. For at least a decade or two, housing costs have been rising. People are feeling more and more like they have to buy houses later, can't start families earlier. All of that ties perfectly with the increase in government spending and government debt. And it's precisely because the more the government spends, the more of your hard work the government is quietly redirecting through the use of inflation to move your purchasing power to the government, through the use of that money to buy regulators that choke businesses or direct, again, the work that you've done to their friends and their donors. So that's the problem is that the vast majority of elected representatives on both sides of the aisle don't understand that. And frankly, too many voters are willing to buy the lie that they're really bringing home bacon. So until that changes, it's hard to see a real win here for the American people at the American economy. You know, Richard Stern, you bring up a good point. And, and the point is too many voters are willing to buy that line. So to me, it becomes voter education, right, uh, that people need to understand that when you hear that the government is spending something, it's not the government spending anything because the government doesn't earn anything, right? They're spending your money, your tax dollars, our money. And, and how do we make that message come across? I, I try to do it on this program. There's not a ton of people up at night every night, right? It's a smaller audience than you might get during the day, yep. even albeit millions of people still, right? And everybody, I think, has a limitation on their audience, irrespective of the day part. What What's the answer? Where do we go? How do we get to this place where people understand that it is uh, the government's responsibility to to do the people's bidding? We don't work for them. They work for us. And that is exactly the question right there. And, you know, one of the things that I try to do with my work and we do the Heritage Foundation is exactly what you're doing as well, which is that kind of voter education, exposing people to this kind of line of thinking. But, you know, here's what I think it is, right? You know, if, if you talk to people that lived 200 years ago, frankly, if you, if you read novels from them, they didn't make this, this confusion because at the time, if the government had strolled up after a crop failure and there was a famine – 
and said, hey, we're really sorry that there's no food, that the crops have failed, but we printed more cash. You know, bits <laughs> of paper with pictures of presidents on it. Here's cash. You're People would have it. said, yeah, that's great, but what am I going to buy with it? There's literally no food, and it's not because the Fed didn't play with the interest rates enough. It's because the crops failed. So, you know, in the modern economy, most of the economy of services, there's enormous change in between the production and the consumption of things. And so people are removed, frankly, from those stages of production. And so I think a lot of people, frankly, find it easy to believe that the cash is value. You know, in fact, the word capital, something you know we economists use, isn't a reference at all to money. And that would surprise people. It's actually a reference to factory equipment. It's a reference to buildings. It's a, it's a reference to things that produce something. So, you know, what I would say is, frankly, one of the things the left has done for 150 years plus is change the language. You know, mm. they talk about inflation as a result of a hot economy. There is no truth there whatsoever. An economy doesn't run hot or cold. It's not a faucet, right? The reason why you get inflation is because the government created more cash, bits of currency, without more production of real goods and services. The classic case of more dollars chasing fewer goods and services. But yet, the left has imbued this corrupt language of economies running hot, right? Where the capital is just cash, that you can move cash around and it magically produces more housing or food or real stuff. So, you know, that's what I think, frankly, right? Is the first part of this is the change of the language, the go back to those, those fa fundamental foundations of how people talk about the economy and think about the economy. Right. So to limit economic illiteracy, which seems to be what the left has been pushing with a lot of things over the years. That's a, a good starting point. Now, what about um, governmentally? We have um, and you said uh, uh, you prefer to call them rhinos, uh, but we, we have a rhino problem right within um, the uh, alleged conservative party in our country. And if we can't count on those, you know, the Republicans to be conservatives, uh, we know we can't count on the Democrats to do that then it seems like hope is lost, or is that too bleak of an assessment? Well, I, I'm always an optimist. And you know, I will tell you this. I, I've been in D.C. for a decade at this point. And what I can tell you is when I got there, there was no one who was willing to call them out, and they had complete control of what was going on. So you know, I think part of what you're seeing right now is it feels worse in some ways because it's getting called out. You know, but the truth is, if we think back 10, 20 years ago when you know, most people, People would say that Congress was more, quote, functional right, or more stable. It really wasn't. Those are the years we're talking about where the debt came from, where out-of-control spending came from, where tax hikes came out of. So, you know, at some level what's happened here is that people are actually standing up to this, that they're actually electing real leaders. And that's why you're seeing this movement and this progress. So it's slow. Right. At times it can feel like there isn't progress. But frankly, I think if we stay to it, if we, if we keep doing this, what we're going to see is more of those leaders, more people like Representative Chip Roy who stand up, who show the way, who lead, and who define what it would look like to get back to a government that respects your hard work, your tax dollars, that doesn't use inflation as a quiet tax to rob you of your future. Well, amen to that. From your lips to God's ears. I, I love the way that sounds, and I appreciate the optimistic view. And I think you're probably right. We just we didn't know there was a problem. The problem was covered up. So it was kind of like, yeah, we're doing great. You know, it wasn't until several years ago, I think, uh, that people started to realize that bipartisanship was a code for like corruption, 
<laughs> if, if you heard the word bipartisan, stand back. It's not a good thing uh, oftentimes. Now, I guess, how do you think this ends? What do you think the ultimate resolution here is? Do they get a deal that everybody can live with? Do they not? Does the pressure from the Senate and the Democrats um, get to a point where Johnson says, okay, I'll work with the Democrats, uh, which in my opinion is probably suicide. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that definitely would be suicide or close to it for him to do. I, I think at the end of the day here, and I, I hate to say this, so you're probably going to get something that is at least close to the bill that's being discussed because frankly, it's actually better than what's happened for honestly, honestly enough, a decade. But I, I think what you're going to get out of this though is some kind of conservative win. There might be something on the border. There might be something about values issues. But I think you're going to get some win here because, frankly, there is so much conservative opposition because the grassroots are so fired up. So it's hard to know what that's going to be. And maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I'd like to think that's going to happen. All right. Now, Richard Stern, let everybody know how they could find out about the work that you're doing at the Grover Herman Center for the federal budget at Heritage, how they could keep up to speed with you. If you're on social, give them your handle. So absolutely. Thanks. Well, on heritage.org, you can find my bio page with everything I've written and that of my colleagues. But you can also find me on Twitter at Rich A. Stern. Uh, and there I'll, I'll put up all these things we're talking about and the graphics that we do at the Heritage Foundation that really show this damage from the government as well. So I thank you so much for having me on tonight. You bet. Thank you. And folks, we're going to continue our conversation with everything that's going on in America at night with you all. Uh, when you guys call in, we're about a half hour away from Open Phone America, uh, which is where you get to call in and share your thoughts and opinions on everything that's going on. And, of course, you can add to what we're discussing with your own topics. I always love to talk about those as well. And some of the things that I'm hot on tonight, I really think there's a, tonight there was more news than many other nights, uh, probably more stories than we're going to be able to get to, but plenty of things to discuss tonight. Uh, and there was a few things from yesterday I'd never got uh, a chance to talk about. The uh, Environmental Protection Agency announced a billion dollars in grants to provide school districts with electric school buses. Then there was a teacher that got a severe brain injury after being punched in the head by a student that was high on drugs. I mean, just a lot of stuff that I want to give you some reaction to. And I didn't have a chance to yesterday because I was rambling about the other stuff, uh, the news of the day yesterday. But we're going to get into a lot tonight. So I look forward to speaking with you guys in Open Phone America. But straight ahead, it's Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. And we're going to have a little bit of a conversation on that as well. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. So it's Law Enforcement Appreciation Week, and I want to talk about that as well as, you know, lots of other things. There's a lot of uh, information that we want to talk about. There's a record number of cops getting shot in the line of duty in 2023, a record number of cops retiring, and uh, things that, you know, I try to keep at the forefront of the national conversation, especially on this program. We're able to reach people from one coast of the country to another. And these are some of the important topics that I think we need to discuss. So with all that being said, I want to welcome 
retired NYPD detective and uh, former member of the FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force, Angel Masonette. Angel, welcome, sir. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I you, appreciate you it. Happy New Year to you, my man. So thank you. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on with um, Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. I feel like uh, law enforcement doesn't seem very appreciated <laughs> as uh, as of late. Uh, the last couple of years, 2020 with all those riots, 2021, lots of retirement, 2022, I think we've seen more of the same. And 2023, we're seeing more cops getting shot in 2023 than, than in, in previous years. So why do you feel uh, from your perspective as uh, you know somebody who was on the street, um, why is it that cops aren't as appreciated today as they were in years past? So when I became a police officer in 1992, it was the uh, height of the crack wars, right? Um, I worked in a 48th precinct in the Bronx. Um, the bad guys had a healthy fear of the police, right? Because the police were allowed to do their jobs. Uh, they're, they're, they weren't handcuffed. Uh, they weren't um, uh, being uh, right. you know, uh, neutered, so to speak, by these uh, rogue judges and these activists um, you know, and demonized at, at, at every turn, right? So it was a, it was a, it was a lot different back then. Um, the uh, community wanted us out there; they wanted us to be aggressive. But um, being aggressive doesn't mean you can't be fair. You can't have empathy for people. You know, the two aren't mutually exclusive. And obviously, a lot has changed since then. Now, you mentioned activist district attorneys. Um, do you think that's the only reason that that there's been such a shift or is there more to it? I think that um, so in my opinion, police, uh, the, the police profession itself, um, uh, police officers are the most marginalized members of the community right now. Right. Um, everything they do is under a microscope. One officer, as we saw in the um, Derek Chauvin case. Right. Which is a whole right. rabbit hole we could go down. Um, one officer does something bad and the whole profession is demonized. You know, there's not one profession in this country that is demonized the way police are based on the actions of one individual, right? Um, they make it, you know, we have over 800,000 sworn law enforcement officers in this country. There are over 70 million interactions a year with the public in this country. You know, um, something's bound to go wrong, right? And I think the numbers speak for themselves. The fact that um, police, you know, the vast majority of the times they handle themselves um, with dignity, respect and honor um, that, you know, that's often overlooked because of the one or the two bad apples or bad acts that happen. Yeah. Now, do you see do you see any hope um, coming down the road? Do you feel like there's a change? Right. I think we've seen a number of we've seen FBI agents getting carjacked in D.C. We've seen crime up in D.C., uh, I think there's been a, a judge just last week that was attacked by a, a, um, one of the um, people that was, um, I forget what those people are called. Anyway, <laughs> uh, an alleged perpetrator, right? Right, yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then he comes back looking like Hannibal Lecter. The guy's got, you know, leg irons. He's got the, the waist chain. He's got a spit guard on his face. And, and, right. and she charges him with attempted murder. Uh, for what he right. did to her, so um, or the prosecutor did, and I feel like 
you know, is that what it takes, right? Do you have to be like a, a hurdle jumper that jumps the bench and attacks a judge in order to get charged with the, the, the right crime and not see these, these charges downplayed all the time? Is, is that what it takes? Are people becoming more hip to this? Or, or do you feel like the, the pendulum's still swinging in the wrong direction? Um, I think the pendulum is still swinging in the wrong direction, unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, in a case like what happened with that judge, you know, uh, uh, if that was a police officer that he did that to or one of the uh, court officers, there wouldn't have been a charge as serious charge, right? We, I mean, right. history shows that um, police officers get assaulted, uh, spit, you know, spat upon. They have uh, urine and feces thrown at them during riots during the summer of love of 2020 during Occupy Wall Street. I mean, you know, the riots of Washington Heights, Crown Heights riots, uh, the list goes on and on, right? Um, officers are constantly getting assaulted. They're constantly getting um, accosted and uh, nothing happens. Nothing happens. So it's a bit of, uh, I mean, while I was happy to see that the judge did that to that defendant, it's, you know, it's a little bit of a, um, hypocrisy, right? Because, you know, it's like rules for, for thee and not for me, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. you can assault police officers, you can go out there and you could victimize people in the street, but then you have people like Alvin Bragg, the district attorney of New York City, you have um, all these activist judges, and they unfortunately are not giving the criminals enough consequences where the criminals realize that, hey, you know, I can get away with a lot more than I, than I could get away with, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And I want to pull on that thread a little bit when we come back. Folks, uh, stick with us. We're coming right back with a retired NYPD detective, former member of the FBI and NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force. Angel Masonette, it's Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. I'm Rich Valdez, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Welcome back. And there's uh, lots to discuss, right? Part of what I want to talk about uh, here with our guest, Angel Masonette, uh, retired NYPD detective and former member of the FBI NYPD Joint Terrorism Task Force, is something he mentioned. He said there's just not quite enough consequences for the bad guys. Now, I get that. Growing up, I had consequences. If I didn't do things right, my mother would take off her chancleta and, uh, you know, like a little sandal. And she would, you know, she'd give me a little something. And if that wasn't enough, it was wait till your father comes home, right? There were consequences to your actions. But today we don't have those same types of consequences. So when you have those in uh, the criminal justice system, those that are the prosecutors, those that are uh, lawmakers that are changing the rules, right? Changing the rules of the game. So that you can now, instead of stealing um, $1,000, you can steal up to, you know, or $500, you can steal up to $900 without getting charged for a felony. What happens? 
people start robbing Target, robbing Neiman Marcus, robbing whomever. And you see Bloomingdale shutting down and this one's shutting down and closing any number of stores uh, across the country with retail theft uh, costing billions per year. And it, it seems like this is a problem of our own making. So not only is there a lack of consequences, but it seems like we're paving the way to continue this behavior. Angel Masonette, what say you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, uh, you can't have people go into stores and they're going to get Similac or medicine or anything, you name it. And now you walk into any pharmacy in the city of New York and everything's locked up behind, you know, a glass or behind the counter and you have to get keys for it and things of that nature. It just, it's not conducive to having a a nice functioning, you know, peaceful society, right? Because everybody's kind of adjusting their way of life now um, to kind of coexist with these criminals, right? As opposed to saying, Hey, we got to do something about this, put these people behind bars, you know, where they belong removed from society. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to have to assimilate to their lives and the way they operate because, um, the people who we trust, right? Because, you know, the police are only the first part of it, right? The prosecutors have to do their jobs, right. the judges do their jobs. Then, you you know, the prisons, the jails have to do their jobs and, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, the people who are in charge of keeping these people behind bars and out of society are not doing their jobs. So now, you know, the good people, which 90% of the people who live in the ghetto are good people, they're just trapped right? Due to any number of circumstances, they have to assimilate and, and learn how to live with these criminals. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a good point. And I feel like we, we need more of what we used to have and less of what we currently have. How realistic do you think that is? Do you think we get back to a place where we're able to have consequences, where people are kind of stern and strict and uh, have a high standard for respect? where the profession of policing is once again respected? Or do you think this is it? This is uh, the end of the road. It was once a nice thing, but not anymore. Well, there's a couple of components to that, right? I mean, you have, there are, there are uh, young men and women in this country who dream of being police officers, who take the job, who still want to do it in spite of all the craziness, in spite of all the anti-police rhetoric, in spite of everything. My oldest son is now a police officer. Um, yeah, good you for know, him. And there are people that want to do that job. So there's always going to be the heroes that are going to take that responsibility, you know, put that responsibility on their backs. But um, when you have, and I hate to make it political, but when you have, you know, blue cities uh, run by Democrats, run by leftists, progressives under the guise of social justice, they're saying, Hey, we got to get rid of this. We got to get rid of that. And they're making, they're enacting these policies and these laws that, you know, help the criminals escape consequences, as we, you know, stated earlier, and Mm -hmm. they demonize police every chance they get. Um, I mean, how can it take a turn? You know, how can it take a turn go back to the way it was? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that it's going to happen, unfortunately, you know, because the writing's on the wall right now. And unless we change, uh, we fire these people by, you know, uh, voting in other folks, who are going to, you know, hold criminals responsible and hold politicians and hold, you know, politicians themselves and judges and district attorneys responsible for their lack of uh, doing their job, then things are not going to change. 
he's not going to change. Yeah, it's it's a sad truth, and I think as long as we have uh, college education programs where it's it's taught that law enforcement is is an extension of of slave masters and 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 this yeah. type of uh, very dangerous thinking, very dangerous rhetoric, where you don't exist to keep society safe and civil, uh, but moreover you exist uh, to continue the oppression of people of color. Uh, it, it this victim uh, oppressor mentality will only create more strife, and I don't know how we get away from that, other than, you know, training our children to become professors, to become prosecutors, to become you know every other part of this ecosystem that we live in that's been corrupted by those that lean to the left. Folks, we're on with Angel Masonette. Uh, he is a uh, former detective in the NYPD. Today's Tuesday, January 9th. 2024 it's law enforcement appreciation day and we're going to wrap up with uh, detective masonette straight ahead don't go anywhere this is america at night with rich valdez call now 833-4-VALDEZ that's 833-482-5337 833-4-VALDEZ that's valdez with an s So a group called Cops, Concerns of Police Survivors, helped establish this uh, day that we're celebrating today, National Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, uh, noting that law enforcement officers had chosen a very difficult career path and needed to be shown respect and recognition by the people who they were protecting and, and serving, right, and upholding the law for. And I think it's important that we uh, take time to say thank you to all of the men and women in blue that are out there. But our guest, Angel Masonette, is with us, a former NYPD detective. And Angel Masonette, of course, we thank you for being with us tonight and for all of your service. But tell us um, in the four minutes we have remaining, five minutes or so, what what's the, the most eye-opening, exciting, crazy story you have in your years on the street? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and you um, only got four and a half minutes. <laughs> well, I can tell you the best thing I ever did was uh, deliver a baby girl in 1996, wow. Armin in the Bronx. Um, that was the most uh, uh, eye-opening, life-changing thing that I ever went through as a police officer in a positive light. Um, <clears throat> the worst thing that I experienced as a police officer um, obviously the, you know, the normal day-to-day quote unquote, you know, routine, uh, death and destruction that police officers witness on a daily basis, obviously was horrible. And, and, you know, to that, to that, uh, uh, point, uh, you know, many officers committing suicide, um, around this country, uh, every year, every day, uh, there are officers taking their own lives. Um, it's becoming quite an epidemic, but, um, the worst day of my service was September 11th, um, 2001, the attacks on the, um, on the world trade center. Um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention retired, um, 
chief of department, Joe Esposito, who unfortunately passed away yesterday. Um, he was a, he was the longest, thank you. He was the longest serving uh, chief of department. He was chief of department for 13 years and he passed away due to cancer that he contracted from working down in, you know, at ground zero. So that was the worst thing that I've ever experienced. I was fortunate enough when I was on the JTTF to work um, on the Naji Bulazazi case. I was the case officer for Dismadujanin, who was uh, part of a trio of individuals who were, who were planning a subway attack um, on the anniversary of September 11, 2009. They were going to blow up three subways um, and kill probably thousands of people, and we foiled that plot. So that was one of the most humbling things that I got to be a part of. Um, as a member of the NYPD and, you know, working international terrorism cases. So that in a nutshell, I hope that sums it up for you pretty good. Yeah, no, really, I, honestly, it was uh, kind of the best and worst uh, for you. And it really gives you, yeah. a, it, it shows some light. You know, I've had the, the, the good pleasure. I'm the youngest of a bunch of kids. And two of my older brothers, uh, John Valdez and Albert Valdez, both served NYPD and, uh, and remained. My brother, John, went into being a Fed after his 20 years uh, on the job. And my brother Al went into corporate security for a hotel group. But uh, I, I got the benefit of hearing all of their stories and, and you know, their admonitions. And kind of like you said, a lot of people don't want to do it. Uh, my nephew, uh, John John, he, my, my brother John's son, wanted to be a cop. And he told, no, nah, don't do it. I wanted to be a cop. He said, no, nah, don't do it. Uh, because they'd been through a lot, right? These guys uh, <clears throat> were from a different era. And right. and ultimately, my, my nephew did become a cop. He's still NYPD and, and, and good for him. Uh, and I, I ended up on radio, but it, it's just interesting to see, right. How, you know, you could see people do some of the, the most noble, uh, noble and courageous work that one could think of being a cop and, and then, and caution people, you know, Hey, don't do it. Uh, because, because of where we are today, where it, it it's not viewed as noble anymore. It's not viewed as courageous. And, you know, some people view it as, as, as mean and mean spirited. And it, it's a shame that we've gotten there. So, uh, kudos to you for being out there, um, you know, on the airwaves, on, on television, doing what you do, letting people know that, you know, the cops aren't the bad guys and pointing out who the bad guys might be in every situation that you can. And, um, thank you for being with us for law enforcement appreciation day. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I look forward to coming on again, hopefully in the future. Appreciate you. you. Bet. And Angel, if anybody wants to follow the work that you're doing, how do they find you? So you can follow me on Instagram and on X, formerly known as Twitter. Um, my handle is Big Weekend Man. That's me. I'm 6'5", 285. So I'm the Big Weekend Man. You can follow me on Instagram <laughs> there you go. and X. <laughs> Perfect. Follow me at Big Weekend Man on social media. Folks, stick around. Open Phone America is coming up right now. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america 
And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And welcome to the program. It's hour number three. This is Open Phone America, a time-honored tradition here on this program where you're uh, able to call in and share your thoughts on what's going on on the hottest stories of the night. We talk about them right here, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. And so far tonight, we've talked about a bunch of different things, right? There's been a, a lot of developments. We had some conversation around uh, Trump's day in court, and we have some more audio on that that we can get to in a moment. Um, these judges were going in on Trump's attorneys. I mean, they were unrelenting with their hypotheticals, really grilling uh, the Trump team. And again, I guess that's what is to be expected when you're uh, an attorney for Trump and you're going into a courtroom that is clearly not on your side, not impartial, uh, but blatantly kind of against you, the D.C. District Court. But either way, I think uh, the Trump attorneys definitely held their ground, uh, and we've got some audio on that. We've also had some discussion around the um, immigration stuff. All right, There's a lot of immigration stuff going on in New York City. You've got kids being kicked out of school. They're shutting down the public school and making it go online like the way they did during COVID, uh, remote learning, so that they can use the, the school as an actual shelter for uh, illegal immigrants that were being housed at Floyd Bennett Field in New York. And they can't anymore because of this storm that came in. And now you've got your kids staying home, going to school on the computer. Why? Because Mayor Eric Adams has overextended himself and Joe El Baboso Biden has done the same by maintaining an open border. So we're going to talk about immigration. We're going to continue to talk about uh, everything else that we talked about tonight with our wonderful guests, Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. And a big shout out, a big thanks to everybody that serves in law enforcement. Uh, as you guys know, I have some police uh, officers in the family and uh, was a volunteer uh, for the police department myself in Jersey when my kids were smaller. <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I'm always very thankful for the, the men and women of law enforcement, even if I, you know, I get a little upset because they, you know, want to give you a ticket for speeding or something like that. And honestly, the last time I got pulled over for that, uh, they let me go with a warning. So uh, a warning and a ticket, right? I think it was a $50 ticket, but I, I took it. It was no points. It was no whatever. It had nothing to do with speeding. Uh, I was grateful for that. And I, I didn't even think I was speeding, to be honest with you, but I'm pretty sure I was if they said so. Um, you know, just sometimes, you know, your foot gets like lead filled and uh, you go faster than you want to go. Anyway, so we're going to do those those topics uh, plus everything else. And there's a, um, a number of stories that I wanted to get to even yesterday and I didn't get a chance to. Uh, one of them was uh, a teacher that was hit in the head, and that was a very horrible, horrible announcement. Um, and a couple other stories that are out there. But I want to start with, uh, let's see, we talked about this earlier, and I think this is a really big one here. Funny business with Funny Willis. That's right. The district attorney in Georgia has a boyfriend. And this boyfriend of hers made almost a million bucks from the Trump indictment, all taxpayer dollars. And then she went on a vacation, a very lavish vacation with this guy. Well, it turns out that this guy also met not once, but twice with the White House 
prior to the indictment of Donald Trump in Georgia. So uh, let's dig into this one a little bit, shall we? I think we shall. Let's go. All right. That doesn't want to work for me. Hold on. What's going on? Here we go. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The boyfriend of Funny Willis, a guy named Nathan Wade. He's a Fulton County special prosecutor in the Trump case. Now, this uh, special prosecutor spearheading the uh, Fulton County election interference case has been accused of having an improper clandestine personal relationship with his boss, Funny Willis. Now, a uh, court filing on Monday said that Nathan Wade used his taxpayer-funded paycheck to bankroll lavish trips that he took with Ms. Willis. The motion from the defendant, Michael Roman, uh, which offered no concrete proof of the romantic ties, but cited sources close and divorce filings, and he argued that the relationship tainted the Fulton County election uh, interference investigation. Hmm. Let's see. Now, Mr. Wade did not respond to a request from the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Ms. Willis's uh, spokesperson said that the district attorney's office would respond to the allegations through the appropriate court filings. Uh, now, here's what we know about Mr. Wade. He works in private practice. Wade is a defense attorney and a one-time municipal court judge. His suburban Atlanta firm, Wade and Campbell, focuses on personal injury cases, contract litigation, family and domestic law, as well as criminal defense. He's a graduate of uh, John Marshall Law School, and he served as uh, an assistant um, attorney for Cobb County in 1999. They go by the title solicitor. Uh, He also uh, served in the solicitor general's office uh, handling misdemeanor cases. He became Mariana County's first black male judge in 2011 when he was appointed to a post on the city's municipal court. That's uh, according to um, the publication, The Daily Report. Now, Mr. Wade also made several unsuccessful runs for judgeship on the Cobb County Court and looks like uh, maybe two runs on the Cobb County Court. Now, in 2020, Mr. Wade's firm was retained by then... uh, Cobb County Sheriff Neil Warren to review complaints of use of force, racial biases, discrimination, and neglect at the county jail after seven detainees died in custody. Three months later, an Atlanta television station sued Warren, accusing him of manufacturing a fake investigation to circumvent open records laws. Mr. Wade defended his work. A judge later ordered the sheriff to release the records. So uh, he's been an informal advisor to Funny Willis for years. And he was a mentor to Funny Willis after she was first elected as chief magistrate judge for the suburb of uh, South Fulton back in 2019. He served on Ms. Willis's transition team as she prepared to take office as district attorney and sat in as Willis uh, re-interviewed every employee in the office for their job. Wade was later tapped to lead the election probe. Uh, He's very quiet in public, but very vocal as a key player behind the scenes. According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Mr. Wade led prosecutors' uh, presentation to the special and grand jury that spent nearly eight months in 2022 collecting evidence and hearing witness testimony, uh, specifically in the Trump case. Multiple grand jurors previously interviewed by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Uh, gave Mr. Wade high marks for his work and personal style. He has a penchant for bold suits and ascots. He owns about 20 of them. 
All right, so he's a fancy pants. Over the course of the investigation, Wade had questioned witnesses, signed subpoenas, blah, 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 and uh, handed up the indictments against Trump and 18 others back in August. In court, Wade has largely uh, let his deputies take the lead during arguments before Judge Scott McAfee, but when he does speak, he comes off as soft-spoken. Defense attorneys, however, have complained about Wade's hard-nosed tactics behind closed doors. One lawyer representing more than half a dozen Trump electors who prosecutors had briefly uh, tried to disqualify accused Mr. Wade of misleading and intimidating her clients after they accepted immunity details. He's one of the highest paid prosecutors in Georgia. Look at that. Uh, Getting paid. Look at this. $654,000 since January of 2022, according to county records, making it likely that he's the highest paid prosecutor in the state. By comparison, Georgia Supreme Court justices currently earn just more than one hundred and eighty six thousand dollars a year. So he's he's making more than three times the amount of a Supreme Court justice at the state level. Wade is the Fulton County DA's office highest paid contract attorney. His law partner, Christopher Campbell, has separately made $126,000 for his work with Fulton prosecutors, and obviously he's made that much more. Now, and and this goes on and on, I'm not going to read all of it to you, but ultimately what happens here is that this guy, Wade, actually went and, you know, who's alleged of having, uh, accused of having a romantic relationship with Funny Willis, went to the Biden White House twice before actually bringing charges against Trump. And I think that's something that we need to be mindful of. What were they talking about? What were they saying? What happened in that meeting? That's what I want to know. Will I get the answer? Probably not. But you guys are welcome to speculate on that as well. We're going to take a quick pause. We'll come back with some of the audio from the judge as well. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Mr. Call Screener, who is a budding radio star, by the way. Richie Valdez is terrific. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. And we continue our discussion. I see the calls are uh, coming in. I will get to you momentarily. Stick with me. Uh, I just wanted to finish my um, my line of thinking here with Funny Willis and her n- now uh, boyfriend that we know about and their improper relationship being that she was, you know, hiring this guy and billing and billed $4,000 for meetings with these White House officials. He was there twice Prior to this even happening, I'm talking about Nathan Wade. 
He's the special prosecutor that uh, Georgia District Attorney Funny Willis uh, had put in place and billed the DA's office $4,000 for two separate eight-hour meetings with White House officials while overseeing this election interference case against former President Donald Trump. Now, this stuff's all come out in court records that just were recently released. The uh, meetings were attended by Mr. Wade. Uh, He's a private attorney hired by Ms. Willis to assist in the prosecution of Trump and his co-defendants. And they met twice with folks in the Biden White House. Uh, Let me see. According to invoices, included a court filing by Michael Roman, a former Trump 2020 campaign official. Roman argues that in court, in his filing, that Willis should be disqualified from the case and the charges against him should be dropped because of her alleged improper, clandestine, and personal relationship with Mr. Wade. The uh, services rendered by Wade in connection with the case seemingly include attending an event with White House counsel in Georgia and meeting uh, with them at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, according to these invoices. So there we have it. And this guy's already made, you know, more than $650,000. His uh, law partner has gotten another close to $200,000. And this is all taxpayer-funded money, right? So let, let's see uh, what America thinks of this stuff. Let's go to Newport, North Carolina, WTKF. Let's check in with Larry. Hey, Larry, you're on with Rich Valdez. What do you think about Funny Willis and this funny business? Well, I mean, that's all a uh, political hack job and everything. We all know that. That's that's going to go away. She's done enough. Every bit of that stuff's going to go away. But I... I call you because you're from New York. You're up there in the – you guys got the most people in the eastern seaboard besides Florida. I can't – and 25% now, they're talking 25% of the black men of this country up in New York are ready to vote for Donald Trump, Hispanics like Ford. How can you lose? If you guys in New York – man, that's 53 delegates. We need your mm-hmm. help up there in New York. I mean, well, let me tell you, I did a TV show the other day, or not now like a month ago, uh, with my buddy John Tobacco on Newsmax TV. And there, his uh, colleague on the show, Cara Castronova, was doing uh, interviews on the street, interviewing people on Fordham Road in the Bronx. And it just happened to be that everybody she interviewed was Hispanic or black. And everybody that she interviewed, th- this wasn't like they only picked the interviews that were anti-Biden. Every one of the interviews that she picked, just people that she spoke with on the street, all didn't like Biden. And again, and this is uh, in the South Bronx. So I've got to tell you, it makes a ton of sense to me. People that want to have money, people that want to go on a vacation, people that want to be with their family, they, um, they're, they're not enjoying this current climate that we have in New York because of so many factors, right? It's just not conducive. It's not conducive to, to a lifestyle that is productive. It's just not what 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 you see going on is people um, reacting to the way their lifestyles have had to change. One woman said, I have to spend four hundred, five hundred dollars just to buy the same amount of groceries I used to buy. That's not conducive to their lifestyle. That's not good for their family. So it makes all the sense in the world to me that they're going to go ahead and say, you know what? I'm not voting for this guy, Biden. I don't like this guy one bit. Bring back Trump. I think a lot of people want Trump back because 
life was just easier. There was no new wars. Things were better. Um, and I think people were, were in better shape, right? They just financially, mentally, physically, everybody felt better. Um, it, it was just a better time to, to be alive, honestly. Uh, anything pre-Biden, hopefully post-Biden, just during Biden, not the best look. Those are my thoughts, Larry. $34 trillion in the hole, Rich. We've got to make money in this country. Donald Trump can crank up this awesome power in this country and make money to pay all this stuff back. Amen to that. I hope he does. Uh, and I'm with you. I hope that uh, I hope that we see New York turn red. We have, honestly, uh, not at the statewide level, but in the last uh, two congressional elections, We've seen more and more uh, areas of New York uh, become red. Almost all of Long Island now is red. So I think that we're going to see a little bit of a shift. Um, and we might see it in New Jersey as well. That would be nice. But it, 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 there's still a ways to go, right? There's still, you know, people that are out to get you. As much as you're trying to work hard to do the right thing for yourself, there's people out there that are like, eh, you know, let me rain on your parade. And lamentably, that's just how that works. Larry in Newport, North Carolina on WTKF. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I agree with you. Trump's going to get a a good percentage of of the minority vote, especially the uh, Hispanic vote. And I think he's doing a great job with the black vote. So uh, that's going to prove to be very interesting come election time. And we're going to get to the rest of your calls. I see more calls coming in right now. Uh, We're going to talk about Biden and the rest of what's happening in America at night. The phone number, 8- Three three four eight two five three three seven eight three three four Valdez is the phone number. And of course, if you miss any of the interviews we do on this program, you're always welcome to tune in um, digitally. Right? You can listen right to any of our shows right on our website, Rich Valdez America at Night dot com. Rich Valdez America at Night dot com, and you don't have to miss anything. Plus, you can subscribe to the podcast there as well. I highly recommend that. Folks, there is more to come. It's coming up right now, right after this, straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. I'm Rich Valdez. Valdez, you have one of the greatest shows that radio has ever had. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. I've spent more time in uh, the uh, Bethel AME Church in Wilmington, Delaware than I have... Uh, than most people I know, black or white, have spent in that church. Because that's why I started a civil... No, I'm serious. I started a civil rights movement. I used to go to 7.30 Mass, then I'd go to 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock service with the reverend who was then running the church, is now the bishop. She's a bishop, and I'm told your bishop had been there before in South Africa. And that's where he is right now. The point is that I've been blessed to worship here before as well.
Well, there you go. You've got President Joe El Baboso Biden. Um, a couple of months ago, maybe it was last year already, he said, I was raised by the Puerto Rican community. Uh, no, sir, you were not. Um, then he said, uh, politically, politically, I was raised by them politically. Now he spent more time in the Bethel AME Church, which is African Methodist Episcopal, right? He's more time in the black church than the black people. Unbelievable. If you don't know if you're voting for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, then you ain't black, right? I mean, this this guy seems to not uh, learn any of his lessons. Uh, I'm, sur- I'm surprised at this. Honestly, I am. But this is where we are. Let's go to Zanesville, Ohio, W-H-I-Z, and check in with Paul. Paul, go right ahead. What say you about Joe El Baboso Biden? Well, good evening, Rich. And, yeah, you know, you kind of stole my thunder there a little bit. Uh, you know, you know, you have a delusional president, and I think that's the right word. When he says, I started the civil rights movement. Now, I think that the Martin Luther King Jr. family might have something to say about that. But after I heard <laughs> more of what he said, he said he started it in the church and so forth there, right? But this is how delusional this man is. You know, um, it, it, he has hardly done anything for civil rights. You know, it has been destroy him, look at our border and so forth. But anyway, I just wanted to call in and make comment on that because it just caught me off guard when you got a president of the United States saying he started the civil rights movement when there are so many black and um, African-American people out there have fought and done what they've done. And he has the gall to say this as the president of the United States. He just sickens me. Yeah, I'm with you, Paul. And don't run away so fast. When, when you hear yep. Biden say, uh, you know, not only did he start the civil rights movement, but that that, you know, he was raised. He spent more time in this uh, uh, black church, the Bethel AME church than than anybody else. Uh, how does that strike you? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've, from what I've seen, he, uh, you know, he was the uh, what was the what do you call it when you're the, the eulogy for the head of the Ku Klux Klan and so forth for the grand yeah, Robert uh, Byrd, what a poo, whatever he was. Yeah, you the know, this Cleveland. guy's got the uh, uh, yeah the audacity to say that you know he started the civil rights movement. Come on now, you know, yeah, you might have hairy legs, dude, but you ain't got much of a brain and. <laughs> I don't know. And I, and I will uh, comment on that, Fannie Willis. It, it, to me, it's sure. just, you know, more of the same. Um, you know, it's it's the money. You know, um, they're, they're out to get Trump. They're going to do everything they can. I think we're in for a ride here in the next, what, uh, eight months, nine months, whatever. And uh, I just think the Republicans better buckle down. You know, um, I, I don't want to see Joe uh, Biden as, another, as our next president again. But um, when he says something like that, that would offend me if I was an African-American or so forth to come into these churches and so forth and say, you know, I started the civil rights movement. Dude, no, you didn't. I agree with you. I, I think a lot of people should be offended with, uh, by what Joe Biden is saying. And I think a lot of them are, honestly. I think as we see the polls coming out, more and more people are saying, nah, I'm not messing with this guy. He's not for me. Paul. Uh, excellent point. I appreciate it. We're going to continue with the rest of your calls and more. I'll give you the phone number 833-482-5337-8334 Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-482-5337. For Valdez, that's Valdez with an S.
Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, so welcome back. And I mentioned this earlier. I just want to kind of double down on it a little bit. You got a student who was 15 years old allegedly attacked a teacher while they were hallucinating on drugs, leaving the teacher with a severe brain injury. That's according to the police. This 15-year-old Ohio uh, student allegedly punched a teacher in the head while hallucinating on drugs, leaving her with a severe brain injury that required removal of her skull cap, which is a pretty uh, common procedure for what they call a subdural hematoma, where your uh, your brain is swollen and, you know, they need to make space for that swelling. The uh, Coleraine High School student, Coleraine, that's an interesting one. <clears throat> anyway, acting, uh, began acting distraught after ingesting an unknown drug in a classroom, according to the police report. He allegedly punched a 60-year-old teacher in the head and caused a severe brain injury while requiring extensive, uh, extensive medical treatment. Uh, the Cincinnati Inquirer reported. Now, the teen was also accused of attacking another 15-year-old student by grabbing him and pinching his neck. Jeez, this kid was out of control. The teacher was taken to the hospital, had part of her skull cap removed to prevent damage from swelling. Yeah, that could be a serious thing. Now, let's see. The school says they're investigating the incident, yada, yada, yada. There's no current threat to the school community with respect to this incident, the school said in a release, according to the uh, Inquirer which is the paper that reported on this also. The incident remains under investigation. <clears throat> I got to tell you, I read stories like this and I think, man, what in the world is going on? This is just horrible stuff. Sarah, Bedford, Indiana, go right ahead. Great talk to you as always. Uh, wanted to Likewise. comment on the hopeful exodus of black and Latino voters from the Democratic Party. And I know the economy will, will play a part of it, but I also think the culture war will... Uh, the whole LGBT trans mm. agenda where they're trying to groom your kids. Um, I think a lot of these people are culturally conservative, and whereas in times past, say in the 70s and 80s, you had groups like the moral majority, which were perceived as major, you know, white. Whites always had to worry about the, being accused of being racist, but non-whites don't have to worry about that baggage. The left isn't going to get away with that. And a lot of these people um, are starting to realize that um, they claim they're for you, but they're going to destroy your family. And they're going to groom your kids. And I think they're waking up to that. And I, I think that will be a part of the exodus. You know, it's like the gentleman you had on from Lexit talking about um, the protests mm. in California. So just right. that was my comment. Well, I think that's uh, that's important now, Sarah. Now, I know you work in the school system. Um, do you see this type of thing regularly, kids getting high on drugs and beating up teachers? Well, I work night shift, thank goodness. I think it's a little safer. We do... Um, I think every school, at least uh, middle school on up, has what they call a community resource officer, which is a police officer. And, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know about them punching teachers, but um, it, when if you have to have a police officer at your school, that, that does tell you something. They didn't have them in times past when I first started working. 
um, the school system in 2007. It was a different one, but same demographics. Um, right. And uh, so I think there are a lot more behavioral problems, and it seems to start in, um, I mean, it does at elementary, but not enough to necessitate a full-time officer. But obviously by middle school, that's a different story. Um, sad to see it. I, I think parents are going to start sending their kids to private institutions. Um, bad thing about public schools is they um, can't re- like kick kids out the way private school can. Yeah. And when the private school does, where do they end up? In the public district. And uh, there they are again. So, I mean, I don't think kicking kids out is ever the answer. Um, I, I, I've never met a kid that was expelled and was like, man, I really learned my lesson. <laughs> it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Anyway, uh, Sarah, thank you for your thoughts. I appreciate the call. Always a pleasure to speak with you. We're going to continue with the rest of our show and the rest of the topics that we have straight ahead, plus your calls. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, before we wrap, I want to make sure um, uh, you have a chance to listen to this back and forth. It's a little bit long, but um, for context, I don't want to cut it any shorter. Between Judge Florence Pan and uh, uh, attorney Sauer, Dean John Sauer, he is uh, attorney for Donald Trump. They had this back and forth in D.C. Uh, Circuit Court of Appeals today uh, where the judge was legitimately asking um, if Trump had SEAL Team 6 assassinate his political rivals. Like, you know, in, in a very crass hypothetical. Um, and I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about Trump potentially taking the stand uh, or offering uh, closing comments for his New York uh, civil trial. Uh, And that may be happening soon as well. So we'll talk about both of those. But I want you to hear the um, the the back and forth Uh, earlier on tonight. I played um, Trump's comments where he says that he thinks that presidents uh, need to have immunity in the course of their work, just like members of Congress do and so on and so forth. It was an interesting argument for sure, but I want you to listen to the back and forth between uh, Attorney Sauer and Judge Pan. Listen to this. But your position is that he can't be prosecuted for that unless he's impeached. That was as long as it's an official act. I mean, certain cases, purely private conduct under Clinton against Jones, he'd be subject to prosecution for that as long as he's not in office. But as long as it's official. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to seal Team Six. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal what prosecution. If you weren't, what if you weren't? There would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that. 
Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes no yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached, would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first, and so, so your answer is. Is, no. is my answer is qualified? Yes, there is a political process that would have to occur under our, the structure of our constitution, which would require impeachment and conviction by the Senate. In these exceptional cases, as the OLC memo itself points out from the Department of Justice, you'd expect a speedy impeachment and conviction. But what the founders were much more worried about than using criminal prosecution to discipline presidents was what uh, James Madison calls in Federalist Number Forty Seven the you know the, the newfangled and artificial treasons. They were much more concerned about the abuse of the criminal process for political purposes to disable the presidency from factions and political opponents. And of course, that's exactly what we see in this case. I've, I've asked you a, a series of hypotheticals about criminal actions that could be taken by a president and could be considered official acts. And I've asked you, would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached or convicted? Requirement. And your answer, your yes or no answer is no. I, I believe I said qualified yes if he's impeached and convicted first. Uh, we so may my be saying the question same thing. was okay, so he's not impeached or conviction been convicted. Let's put that aside. You're saying a president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team Six to assassinate a, a political rival. Sale of military secrets strikes me as something that might not be held to be an official act. The sale of pardons is something that's come up historically okay. and was not prosecuted. But your brief so, says that communicating with an executive branch agency is an official act. And communicating with a foreign government is an official act. That's what presidents do. They're very strange situations. There's very strange examples of potential official acts. If you look at what Chief Justice said in against Madison, he said, rising directly under Article Two, Section One, that the uh, uh, the courts that the president's official acts are quote never examinable by the courts. And he says it like four different times on pages one sixty four to one sixty six. Well, let me ask you about that then, counsel, because your position is, as I understand it. If a president is impeached or convicted, impeached and convicted by Congress, then he is subject to criminal prosecution, correct? That would be unnecessary. Said to execution. Is that a yes? Yes. yes? Okay. So therefore, he's not completely and absolutely immune because under the procedure that you concede, he can be prosecuted if there's an impeachment and conviction by the Senate. Very, very formidable structural check against the astonishing radical action of executing a former president's official right. acts. But you're conceding that presidents can be criminally prosecuted under certain circumstances. Specifically, if they're impeached or convicted, I think that's the main branch of the impeachment judgment clause. And isn't that also a concession that a president can be criminally prosecuted for an official act because presidents can be impeached for official acts? Those unique circumstances. Correct. But given that you're conceding that presidents can be criminally prosecuted under certain circumstances, doesn't that narrow the issues before us to can a president be impeached? Um, I'm sorry, can a president be prosecuted without first being impeached um, and convicted? It, 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 all of your other arguments seem to fall away. Your separation of powers arguments fall away. Your policy arguments fall away if you concede 
that a president can be criminally prosecuted under some circumstances. So agree with that. The Constitution in the Article 2, Section 1 vesting clause, as interpreted very clearly by Chief Justice Marshall and Morgan against Madison, says Article 3 courts lack jurisdiction to engage in examination of the president's official acts. That's but been you conceded that, that Article 3 courts can do so if he's been impeached and convicted. The Constitution makes a carefully balanced, explicit exception to that principle in the impeachment judgment clause. So the problem for the separation of powers, the Constitution does this in many other situations where it engages in a balancing. What the framers were most concerned about was not the notion that the president would never be prosecuted for things that outrageous political opponents. What they were concerned about was politically motivated prosecutions. But they didn't say the president can never be prosecuted. They, uh, they set up Correct. the separation of powers and then created a very narrow exception Correct. that would but allow prosecution in those cases. So this is the question at hand, right? And I wanted you to hear that exchange, and it's uh, not its entirety, but a good portion of that clip, because I think it's critically important to realize that this is a case that is not, uh, this is a question, right? A constitutional question that has not been answered by the court before, and one that I, that I think should be, because it really cuts at the argument of, is a president above the law? And, and in reality, the president's not above the law, but enjoys quali- qualified immunity in his capacity as president. And I think that that's fair, just like members of Congress do under the speech and debate pl- clause of the uh, U.S. Constitution, just like uh, up until recently, most law enforcement officers in most jurisdictions uh, were, were protected um, under, under qualified immunity while they're exercising their official duties. And it's a, it's a very good um, question. You could see the judge really reaching here, reaching very far, very wide in order to try and, uh, you know, pull a gotcha on uh, attorney Sauer, Trump's lawyer, and it doesn't seem to be working. So good for him for sticking to his guns and uh, doing the right thing, in my opinion. And we'll see what happens with El Trumpito and Aldous Magnus. Trump, uh, who's planning on making closing arguments in his New York City civil fraud trial. Um, I'll keep you up to speed on that as that happens. Uh, The lawyers are going to make their closing arguments, uh, but Trump has expressed his own desire to add his own statement at the conclusion of the case brought to him by Letitia James. So we'll see how that goes. Folks, hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care. Good night, and God bless you, America. I am Rich Valdez. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.